Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Coming up on today's show, remembering the great Vin Scully dead at the age of 94. We'll also get an update on what's happening in Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi has left, but all kinds of angry rhetoric from China. And we'll go through the mission to kill Ayman al-Zawahi in Afghanistan. What does it mean about how the Taliban's behaving in that part of the world? We must note the passing of, of a real legend. That's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but in this case, it it's almost not big enough, really. Vin Scully died yesterday, uh, the greatest sports broadcaster ever. There have been some good ones. You you can pick your favorite. Howard Cosell, Bob Cole, Danny Gallivan, Ed Whalen, Rod Phillips, Brian Hall. I don't care. Pick your favorites. They're all fabulous. They're exceptional. But Vin was in a league of his own. As good as all those guys were, they weren't as good as Vin. And here's why, for me anyway, with any other broadcaster, as good as they were, and as much as we absolutely love to hear them call a game, we heard them because of the game, right? We turned on the TV. We turned on the radio because we wanted to watch or hear the game. Now, if they were there calling the game, great. We loved it. All the better. They're the best. That's not the way that it worked with Vin. There are millions of people. I've spoken to a bunch. I am one who are Dodgers fans now because we were Vin Scully fans First, you turn on a Dodgers game, not for the game, you wanted to hear Vin. Didn't matter who the Dodgers were playing. It could be a meaningless game on a Sunday afternoon in July against some team you couldn't care less about. And it was beautiful. He's been called the sound of summer. And he was. For 67 years, he was the sound of baseball and the sound of summer. And nobody called a game like Vin. Most of the time, he was by himself. Just think about that for a second. There's no color guy. There's no sideline reporter. There's no dugout updates. There's no studio team. No, it's Vin and a microphone and his stories and a baseball game. And that's all he needed. He had his legendary calls. Sure, they all do. Kirk Gibson's home run, game six, the Mets and Sox. Fine. Every broadcaster has legendary calls. It's the play that makes those special. What made Vin special wasn't the play. It was the way he told his stories and wove them into the action. Here he is telling the story of Johnny Gomes being attacked by a wolf, not making it up, um, as he calls a Johnny Gomes at bat. Apparently when Johnny was a little boy, a handyman came over to fix his grandma's fence and he brought his pet wolf. Now the handyman told Johnny, don't play with this animal. It's an actual for real wolf. But Johnny did anyway. And the wolf attacks him, has knocked him down on his chest, just about ready to devour him. 2-2 pitch, check swing, no swing, ball three. Johnny suddenly, totally and completely relaxed. He was done, he knew it. And whatever he did by relaxing, the wolf decided, "Uh uh-huh, I don't have a rival here. And the wolf got off his chest. Johnny got up and walked away. 
Ground ball by the diving Turner. And the base hit by Johnny Gone. That's that's Vin. Just telling the story. I've got a bunch, and if we have more time, I'll play them later throughout the day. The storyteller, the greatest to ever do it. To this day, I'll be flipping around the guide, and I'll see, hey, there's a Dodgers game, and I get a little surge. I think, oh, perfect. It's a hot summer night, Dodger Stadium, Vin Scully. And then I remember, yeah, Vin isn't calling the games anymore, and, and I go find Seinfeld rerun. As good as he was behind the mic, though, anyone who's ever met Vin Scully will tell you he was an even better human being. Beloved doesn't begin to cover how people felt about Vin Scully. And more than a few tears were shed when he signed off for the final time, ending a 67-year broadcast career. You know, friends, so many people have wished me congratulations on a 67-year career in baseball, and they've wished me a wonderful retirement with my family. And now, all I can do is tell you what I wish for you. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. For every problem life seems a faithful friend to share, for every sigh a sweet song, and an answer for each prayer. You and I have been friends for a long time, but I know in my heart that I've always needed you more than you've ever needed me. And I'll miss our time together more than I can say. But you know what? There will be a new day and eventually a new year. And when the upcoming winter gives way to spring, oh, rest assured, once again, it will be time for Dodger baseball. So this is Vin Scully wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon wherever you may be. The best. The best to ever do it. Nobody else came close. The game hasn't been the same since he left. That was October 2nd of 2016 at the age of 88. We lost a legend, a true giant of sports and of broadcasting with Vince Scully passing away at the age of 94. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. going to talk about some world news now. Um, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has now left Taiwan. Uh, it was a pretty brief stayover, wasn't it? Um, she arrived there yesterday, a visit that really ratcheted up tensions with China. She told reporters on her way out that she and other members of Congress in her delegation showed they are not interested in abandoning their commitment to the self-governing island of Taiwan. Whether it's certain insecurities on the part of the president of China as to his own political situation that he's rattling a saber. I don't know. But I, it doesn't really matter. What matters to us is that we salute the successes of Taiwan. We work together 
for the security of Taiwan. Well, they certainly have rattled the saber in response in China. All kinds of action being taken, military exercises and some very sharp rhetoric. So um, whenever we talk about this part of the world, there's one guy I rely on who I think uh, is, when you talk experts, this is the expert of the experts, Gordon Holden, um, who is the Director Emeritus of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science and Adjunct Professor at the Alberta School of Business at the U of A. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. I always appreciate your time, sir. You're far too kind. Thank you, Shay. Um, now, to start, why don't we just back up a bit here? It's a visit. I mean, there's been other visits. Why did this set off China to the point that it did? I mean, long before she arrived, they had started with the rhetoric. Why were they so upset by this? Well, I think in the beginning, they're hoping to prevent it by having a strong verbal reaction. Um, they, of course, they, meaning China, is increasing pressure in Taiwan. They want to achieve their reunification of Taiwan. I think President Xi Jinping would like to do it during his time in office. Uh, but they're not making a lot of progress to date. And so when the number three in the U.S. government comes to Taiwan, it's a big deal for the Taiwanese. And it is, in a different way, a big deal for China as well. And as you say, the the pushback started as soon as there was you know talk that this might happen. And the U.S. decided they were going to go ahead and do it anyway. Why bother? I mean, is it to invite the aggravation? Is it a show of support for Taiwan? What's the U.S. motivation here? Well, I think that the... Um, the U.S. really, the goal of both Pelosi and the U.S. government generally is to shore up support for democracy, for the Indo-Pacific concept of, of democratic countries within that arc of the of the Pacific, of Southern Asia and Eastern Asia. Uh, but the, it's complicated. The Biden administration uh, was not all that keen on the visit at this time. Yeah. Uh, President Biden said, look, uh, the Defense Department doesn't want this. Um, Biden uh, himself, I think we presume his administration did, did, did not want this, but it's what they got. And uh, I think that kind of, of, um, of um, pressure from Biden did not work with Pelosi. And it may have been also that Biden was trying to say, well, look, I don't control the legislative branch. I did my best. She's coming anyway. It's hard to know the backstory, but it wasn't as if the U.S. administration was united by any means on what they were doing. Just the opposite. They were all over the field. And I think that may show a little bit of U.S. indecision, even a little bit of U.S. weakness in some extent. Now, in response, China has said there will be all kinds of military exercises carried out, some of them within what would be considered, I guess, Taiwan's um, waters, uh, things like that. So how how serious should we view this response from China? Well, I think in some ways it's pro forma. They know they couldn't prevent the visit. They tried. Um, it's taken place. They will push hard and they will go further. And the danger is, I think, that each time there's a, something they really don't like or a visit of a high high order, the their reaction gets ratcheted up. And that becomes then the new normal. The only good thing, perhaps, is that none of the parties, not China, not Washington, and not Taipei, want a war. So I think there is still, and they both have competent leaderships that are capable of planning and there's none there's not a desire on china to start a war immediately they could do so if they wished who knows who would win they might they might not so there's a and xi jinping has got a very busy fall coming he's got his party congress he's got COVID issues still they've got economic issues he doesn't need a full-blown crisis on the other hand they couldn't just let it pass 
Right, exactly. Yeah, without some sort of response. Um, going back to the U.S. motivation, there's some people that we were talking about yesterday, and some listeners were saying, and maybe there's some point to hear in terms of Canada, when we talk about our response to China, I see us as, you know, being bullied on the playground quite a bit by China. They do what they want. They don't take us seriously. Could that be as simple as that with the U.S. saying you're not going to bully us? We still are the big guy on the block and we're going to call our own shots and we don't care. You can make all the noise you want, but we're still going to do what we want to do. I mean, is there sort of a power struggle in terms of soft power that way? I think there is still to some extent. And uh, China is a is a great power. It conducts itself as such and is not willing in any time in the foreseeable future to accept uh, a second-class status. Uh, vis-a-vis any other country. Uh, they're very used to getting their way in Asia, and they still will be able to for some time. Uh, so I think there is a sort of a soft power on top of the hard power. If you didn't have that hard power, that U.S. capacity, it wouldn't work. Yeah. And as to bullying, the smaller you are, there is a physics of power. Smaller countries, be it us or Australia or Taiwan, tend to get pushed around. Uh, by the great powers, and that certainly includes China. And Gordon, this has been going on for a long time, this push and pull over Taiwan, and, you know, Hong Kong to a lesser extent as well. Ultimately, does this come to a head? Do we do we get to a point where this goes one way or the other, or is it just sort of this, this pattern that we've been locked into for a while here? Well, we've been locked into it for a long time. I mean, the the um, Nationalist Party came to Taiwan in 1949. So this is a leftover, to some extent, from the Civil War. Um, between the PLA and the nationalist government. It's been around literally for decades, almost since the end of the Second World War. And, and the question is, you're quite right to ask, is it going to come to a head? There's always a risk of that. To me, the status quo isn't perfect. Taiwanese don't get all they want. Yeah. Chinese certainly don't get what they want. But I like the status quo because it preserves the peace. And once you launch into, as we see now in the Ukraine, once you're into a war situation, highly dangerous superpowers confrontation uh, i would my hope would be that certainly hasn't been realized as yet my hope would be that in a certain point of time there'll be a change of government in china towards something more easy that we can more easily live with and taiwanese can live with and then you might have some sort of a grand bargain compromise but we're not there yet so i view we just let's hang on hope that we can we can tiptoe through these crises because the alternative of an all-out war over Taiwan is unthinkable. And as you said, neither side wants that, so they'll put up with a fair bit of saber-rattling and bellicose rhetoric as long as they don't get the shots fired, it's all good. That would be our hope. Of course, nothing is certain. And uh, we saw, for example, in 2001, there was a U.S. aircraft collided with a Chinese fighter jet. Pilots killed. There's high tension for a while. And it is one of my points of nervousness. And I've talked to some U.S. Navy uh, captains in this regard. And when you're, in, when you're maneuvering at high speed in shallow waters or in your aircraft that are approaching and fainting, there's always the risk of, of danger of a collision or, or of an issue. Imagine, say, a U.S. destroyer cut in half by a Chinese vessel or vice versa. Yeah. We'd be then into a full-blown crisis that might be hard to control. It might be hard to control. And that's one of the concerns I have. Yeah, and I think that's shared. We've talked to experts, you know, when they talk about Ukraine and Russia in terms of how realistic is a is a nuclear incident. Well, it, it in likelihood, it would be an accident. It would be a, a misreading of a situation by some human being. It would be something like that. You're right. When, when tensions are this high and there's this much activity, the chance of an accident happening and triggering something much bigger go up exponentially. 
Exactly. And if you see a missile coming towards you, is this accidentally fired? Is it really a missile? Uh, how do you react? You may have only seconds, or the machine controlling it may only have seconds to react. So I'm not saying it isn't without danger. Yes. But right now, what's saving us, I think, is that none of the parties want a conflict. They all have good reasons to avoid one, or at least put it off. And let's just hope they put it off for a long time. Yeah, interesting stuff. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. So this weekend, Joe Biden addressed the American public to announce that uh, the leader of al-Qaeda and the replacement for Osama bin Laden, uh, Ayman al-Zawar, he had been killed in a drone attack. Um, Obviously a win in the war against terror, for sure, but at the same time it raises a whole lot of questions about what's going on with al-Qaeda and more importantly, what's going on with Afghanistan and the Taliban. But just how this came about is also really really interesting so there's a bunch of different areas that we can talk about here and to help us through it all we have major general retired dennis thompson from the canadian global affairs institute 39 years in the canadian military a former commander of the canadian special operations forces command from 2011 to 2014 um major general thank you so much for joining us appreciate it Thank you for having me, Shay. Um, to, to start, to be honest with you, and I, I feel kind of bad, I forgot about Ayman al-Zawari for a while. I mean, I you hadn't heard his name in a very, very long time. He dropped off the map, I think, for a lot of us. But this just shows that these missions never go away. When you're one of America's most wanted people, they're constantly looking for you. Absolutely. I mean, al-Zawari is not exactly the same charismatic leader as Osama bin yeah. Laden. But what's interesting is of late, he, he decided to take the social media and, and try and rebuild al-Qaeda to what it was before. They had some uh, serious competition from Islamic State, as I'm sure you're aware. Mm-hmm. And as a result, uh, they, they did kind of fade into the background. However, they've still been active. They're still sending young uh, Islamic radical, radicalized Islamist men to kill themselves in the furtherance of their aims, which is absolutely abhorrible because none of these people would put themselves in harm's way. But the real message here, and I think uh, Mr. Biden was very clear about it, is there is no impunity for these terrorists. And, uh, and there is an ongoing search for all of these people that have committed these heinous crimes and continue to commit these heinous crimes, and they'll be tracked down. And one by one, either captured or killed. And the process of tracking them down, El Zawari, I imagine there are months, if not years, of work and uh, surveillance and all the rest that went into actually what happened this weekend, right? There certainly is. Uh, there's a, a number of ways of getting to these characters. They're not. Uh, they're very tech-savvy in the sense that they realize that they cannot leave behind them an electronic footprint. Yeah. So. These aren't the sorts of fellows that walk around with an iPhone in their pocket asking for trouble. They're, uh, they, they use uh, couriers, and they stick to all the, the sorts of old-fashioned methods of communicating, which, of course, makes their job of leading the organization much more difficult. Uh, but in this case, uh, we don't know a lot about it. Uh, we can imagine that uh, certainly the intelligence services were uh, operating, the fact that he was found in Afghanistan is disturbing. Yes. Well, it's not, dis- it's not surprising. It's disturbing in that the Taliban did say they were not going to provide safe haven to al-Qaeda or any other terrorist organization going forward, and they clearly uh, reneged on that deal. Uh, but you can imagine that uh, he was either found out, because he did have a $25 million um, 
ransom on his head. He was either, uh, you know, outed, if you will, by uh, the intelligence services using human intelligence sources inside of Kabul. Uh, I don't imagine that there was a James Bond-like character behind this. It's typically the intelligence agencies running, uh, handling, as they say, agents to ferret out the information on the ground. Uh, and or uh, maybe he did get a bit lax and uh, took to his cell phone or at least some of his his uh, those that are close to him may have uh, given him away electronically. Uh, but in any event, uh, what that results in is at some point you do get positive identification of the target you're going after. Uh, if it was a cell phone intercept, then what they typically use is what they call voice positive identification. Okay. And in the case of Al-Sawari... The interesting thing here is, of course, he has been taken to social media of late in, in a much more uh, vigorous fashion, and it's easier to get his voice imprint. So we're not entirely sure how he was found, uh, but uh, it probably was a bit of overconfidence because he was inside a country he considered to be friendly. Um, I wanted to ask you, to me it sounds a little optimistic, but there are some people saying that maybe the Taliban turned him over because he's a big headache for them and they don't want him hanging over their head, so maybe it was the Taliban that sold him out. Do you put any credence in that? Uh, not really. No, I, I don't trust the Taliban whatsoever. I think uh, if... <laughs> They had to have known he was there. Yep. Uh, you may know that uh, there's a number of us involved in trying to move our own former interpreters and their extended families out of the country. Uh, and so we have a pretty good idea of what the pattern of life is inside of Kabul. And there's no way that the Taliban didn't know he was present, just as uh, I doubt the Pakistan uh, intelligence services didn't know he was present in Kabul. Uh, they didn't turn over Osama bin Laden, even though he was, uh, you know, arms uh, rock-throwing distance from one of their military camps. So, no, I don't put a lot of credence in that. And anyway, if he, if, if it was going to be to their benefit, they would have done the job themselves. And, you know, you make a good point. It's not like he slipped in quietly and was living in some nondescript place. By the sounds of it, he was living in one of the large homes that had been taken over by the Taliban after the other government was thrown out. So, I mean, he was probably living close to some Taliban members. Absolutely. It is... Um, um, <laughs> His address, if you will, uh, is in the center of uh, Kabul, yeah. at least uh, what's been indicated to me on uh, Google Maps, etc. It's a heavily populated area. There's, Like I said, there's no way they didn't know he was there. And they would have, uh, the Americans over a course of uh, a long period, would have, of course, established his pattern of life. And then the decision they have to make is, you know, do we actually try to capture this guy with using a special forces team in the same fashion as they did with Osama bin Laden? Or do we just go uh, fully kinetic and, and kill them um, uh, remotely as they have done? So I, I think the risk analysis that was done was, was correct. I don't believe uh, it would have been a fairly high-risk operation to send in a special forces team and try and pull them out of Kabul in order to, to try him or, uh, or to execute him and, and confirm it was him. Uh, um yeah. The, the, the strike itself, uh, I, I'm really interested in that because there was no explosion. There was no collateral damage, according to the United mm -hmm. States. Nobody else was hurt or injured. And Biden was very worried about even bringing down the structure that he was in. And this weapon that they're talking about, the Hellfire Ninja, what can you tell us about the actual operation? Well, I mean, I don't have any inside baseball, so I'll okay. be speculating just as many others have in the media. Um, and there is a version of the Hellfire missile, it's called the uh, R-9X, that is uh, 
as you describe, it has no explosive warhead. It just uses straight kinetic energy. So think of it as a big bullet about the size of a man. And on the wings, it has uh, six uh, blades, essentially, uh, almost like sword blades. So if that flies in at you at, uh, you know, just under the speed of sound or just over the speed of sound, the uh, and it impacts the kinetic energy alone is clearly enough to kill a man and damage the structure but not drop it. So I think that was the uh, that was the calculation that was made. And as I mentioned, they would have spent a lot of effort to determine his pattern of life, and they knew that he went out on his balcony yep. uh, to take the airs, if you will, in the evening. Uh, and that's when they got him. So it's a question of uh, uh, what, what they call the unblinking eye. So once, uh, once you've positively identified your target and you get the unblinking eye over top of them, and that's much easier to do in a place like Afghanistan, which has under the Taliban, which has absolutely no air force, and therefore your drones can loiter for an indeterminate length of time and establish that pattern of life, which, I, I'm again, here I am just guessing. Yes was how they determined, you know, about what time he would go out to take the airs and that they had had a good indication it was him. And then they, uh, then the unblinking eye unleashed this Hellfire missile that essentially uh, plowed into him and, and killed him without causing any other, uh, apart from structural damage, without uh, causing any other casualties, unlike the unfortunate incident about a year ago in Kabul where 10 innocents were killed. And I'm sure that that was on Mr. Biden's mind. Yeah, absolutely. Front and center. I'm sure it was. Okay, so uh, last question here then. And, and as you said, we touched on it briefly. What does this say about where Afghanistan is, where Al-Qaeda is, how the two are fitting together, if not working together? Like you said, Biden said this shows there's no safe harbor, but it looks like maybe there's some of the activity that we tried to stop years ago that's, you know, reasserting itself. That's a much broader question. It... it, it uh you're scratching uh, the point that is the Taliban a global terrorist organization or are they just a local nuisance? Yeah. And I, I subscribe to the to the latter theory. The Taliban never had global ambitions, but Al Qaeda and anyone else who resides in Afghanistan certainly do. What this is, in my humble opinion, is proof of what Mr. Biden was has always been in, in support of, which is the over over the horizon method of applying counterterrorism. So, in other words. You don't need a heavy footprint in a theater of operation in order to execute these sorts of counterterrorism missions. And it also should be an indicator to all of those terrorists out there, particularly the leaders, that there literally is no safe place to hide in, in the world from uh, you know, the, the reach of these counterterrorist methods. Now, it won't always be successful. You'll, you'll probably have much more success and many more options if you do have a footprint in, uh, in a certain theater of operation in order to make things happen. And we saw that when they, when they took out Osama bin Laden. That mission would not have been possible today because it was launched from Afghanistan where they had considerable resources. Uh, so, right. uh, you know, bottom line is no impunity for these uh, terrorist leaders going forward. And perhaps we're starting to see uh, the dawn of, of an even more lethal over-the-horizon counterterrorism uh, capability on the behalf of the United States. So the war on terror has changed, but it has certainly not ended. Oh, no. <laughs> there's, there's lots of folks out there that want to change it, that, that want to have a poke at our way of life, and, uh, and it's our duty to make sure that they pay the price for, um, for this destructive, destructive uh, ideology. 
Major General, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.